Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 464. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy and all seasoned up and uh, ho, 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 if you're into that kind of thing. Oh, we are. My God, the house is dripping in tat. <laughs> it is not long to go. And pressing this button today to record, just over. It's 12.43 there now, just over. 24 hours to go and see, for me personally, the new Star Wars Rogue One. Yes, we'll be sick to death of hearing everything, but at this moment, you know, it, the excitement. And I'm interested if, if you drop us a line. You know, I was talking to a work colleague last night. I was doing the, the, the night shift. And he'd never, you know, my age, you know, he'd never seen any of the Star Wars. And it just knocked us, do you know what I mean? Especially... My, you know, when we were kids and just queuing up for the originals, you know what I mean? The first day it was out, I was there. The, the second film, I was there the first day. It was just, when he said, oh, I've never seen any of them. It was like, eh? You're kidding? You know? So, has that happened to you? Am I just so naive that, you know, I'm thinking the whole world are all, all science fiction and Star Wars? Anyway, I'll tell you what's coming into today's show. First up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. And I know, because she said she's got her little hands clasped around her tickets. Ooh, she's got a little Star Wars jumper as well. Go on, Amy. She's re- I think, I think I'm think i sure Amy's going, you know, that 
one minute past midnight, he kind of first, you know, the very first ones. <laughs> God, just that the little image, a little scene with a, a little hand grasping a little ticket there. <laughs> there's a, Amy sent us a picture. I'm waffling here. I don't mean to be. But Amy sent us a picture. And this was, you know, ages ago when Amy sent it. And she was like dressed up. As you know, Amy is a little tot, I'll, I'll, say, I'll see if I can dig it out and put it up, but I need Amy's permission. But she's dressed as Princess Leia, you know what I mean? I'm thinking Amy's probably about six, something like that, and it's the cutest thing, man. You know what I mean? And it was just, oh, but even like you say, that little image now of Amy's with a ticket in her hand marching up to the, the kiosk. So, first up, yes, let's get back. First up, we've got Amy H. Sturgis. And then next up, we have a great bit of fiction by Beth Chatto, Overlap, which was originally published in the science fiction short stories Gothic Fantasy. So we'll get into that as well. So that's all coming in day show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So, first up is, with ticket in hand, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back on genre history. Today, I would like to talk about a historian, about a controversial and contested thesis about history, about its uncontested and clear impact on popular culture and particularly science fiction, and I'd like to dedicate this segment to my fellow brown coats, that is, fellow fans of Joss Whedon's series Firefly from 2002 and the subsequent film Serenity in 2005, both of which have been celebrated as science fiction westerns. And we'll be talking more about that in just a bit. What brought this topic to mind this month is, unfortunately, more sad news courtesy of 2016. That is the loss of Ron Glass, American actor, born in 1945, passed on November 25th, 2016. He was a veteran of stage and screen. He was known as Detective Ron Harris in the television sitcom Barney Miller from 1975 to 1982, but best known to those of us who are brown coats as the spiritual leader Shepard Book in Firefly and Serenity. He most definitely will be missed. And I should also point out, thanks to The Hollywood Reporter, that he is now known also not only as a terrific actor, but also as a philanthropist. His work for years with the Wooten Center in Los Angeles, quietly, behind the scenes, made it possible for hundreds of young people from the Los Angeles area to attend college. So, not surprising from someone who brought uh, such warmth and a nurturing and caring to his character of Shepherd Book. Before I get started, also, I want to say that this segment is inspired by a work that I have published called Just Get Us a Little Further, Liberty and the Frontier in Firefly and Serenity. And that essay is available in the book, The Philosophy of Joss Whedon edited by Dean Kowalski and S. Evan Kreider, and published by the University Press of Kentucky. I mention this because that larger essay of mine 
deals not only with some of the things I'm going to be talking about today, but also with some other subjects that take us a bit far afield from genre history. So I won't be going into those. But just in case you're interested, I wanted to let you know that there is more to the essay than I'll be discussing today. For example, I talk about political philosopher Isaiah Berlin from Oxford University and his idea of two concepts of liberty, positive liberty and negative liberty, and how those two ideas are reflected in the writing of both Firefly and Serenity. So if you're interested in that, I would invite you to check out my larger essay. But for now, let's talk about genre history. I can tell you firsthand from personal experience that it's not very often a historian presents a scholarly paper at a professional conference and goes on to change the world with it. Believe me, I know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> but uh, there was a historian who did just that, University of Wisconsin historian Frederick Jackson Turner. He presented his essay, The Significance of the Frontier in American History, to his colleagues at the American Historical Association's national meeting, which was held during the Great Chicago World Fair in 1893. And the ideas in that thesis changed not only academic discussion, but also popular perceptions of the United States, particularly the U.S. West, and what was argued to be its unique character. Even today, well over a century later, people who specialize in U.S. and Western history tend to frame their arguments some way in the context of Turner's famous frontier thesis, agreeing with it, disagreeing with it, complicating it, critiquing it, what have you. Now, this paper of Turner's put forth the idea that what made the United States different from other nations, including the European countries that colonized its lands before it became independent, was the experience of the frontier. Here is how Turner put it. The existence of an area of free land, its continuous recession, and the advance of American settlement westward explain American development. He did say that there were a lot of things contributing to how the United States evolved, but the frontier, he said, was the single most important factor that created what he considered to be the American national character. All of the things that he thought really were synonymous with U.S. identity, uh, things like democracy and capitalism and social and geographic mobility. He said they all had their roots in the country's long-term experience with the frontier and that that experience was unique to the United States. Now, you're probably thinking of some ways to criticize this up front, and let me say it is easily criticized. In fact, I teach an entire course uh, where all we do is look at this thesis and sort of pick it apart and see the ways that it doesn't work and see the ways in which it's problematic and and wrestle with it and and uh, play with it and such. So I'm the first person to admit that there are some issues with this, not the least of which is that the notion of the frontier he puts forth sort of ignores the fact that there were already Native peoples living on the continent before U.S. westward expansion. But what I want to focus on here is how these ideas have impacted popular culture. So let's just look at the thesis a little more closely before we start seeing how this plays out in, for example, Firefly and Serenity. 
Of the qualities that Frederick Jackson Turner identified as indicative of the so-called American exceptionalism he was putting forth, one of the most important is what he considers to be the striking characteristics of the American intellect. And here is how he describes those characteristics. Quote, that coarseness and strength combined with acuteness and inquisitiveness, that practical, inventive turn of mind, quick to find expedients, that masterful grasp of material things, lacking in the artistic but powerful to effect great ends, that restless, nervous energy, that dominant individualism, working for good and for evil, and with all that buoyancy and exuberance that comes with freedom. These are traits of the frontier, or traits called out elsewhere because of the frontier. End quote. Okay, so whether we agree or disagree with the historical accuracy of all this, we can see the enduring power of this frontier hero archetype that Frederick Jackson Turner described as it's imagined and reimagined in popular culture. For example, in Westerns, you had the kind of John Wayne, Clint Eastwood character that embodies a lot of these characteristics, and these have played into science fictional characters. Think of Han Solo, for example, first seen in a Wild West-esque setting in the cantina at Moss Eisley Space Station. Or think of that star of the space western himself, Captain Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly and Serenity. We know from the Firefly episode Our Mrs. Reynolds that Mal is a child of the frontier, born on the rim world of shadow, and raised by his rancher mama and about 40 hands. Turner describes the frontier as the outer edge of the wave, the meeting point between savagery and civilization. And in Serenity, Mal identifies himself and his crew in just such a position. So here's us on the raggedy edge. Firefly writer Tim Minear also uses similar language to Turner's, explaining that he wrote the episode Bushwhacked about, quote, civilization, savagery, and how our people, that is, the people on the ship Serenity, inhabit a space between those two extremes, end quote. We could sort of go down a checklist here about the so-called uh, American intellect, and Malcolm Reynolds' characterization just ticks all of those boxes. Coarseness? Well, there's the colloquial manner of Mal's speech, which contrasts sharply with other characters who use educated language, like Inara Sarah or Simon Tam. Strength? That's highlighted multiple times, from his survival of the Battle of Serenity Valley to his endurance despite terrible wounds and torture. His acuteness and inquisitiveness lead him to outsmart his foes in episodes like Serenity and Trash, and observe and understand more than others, like in the episode Bushwhacked or the film Serenity. His practicality and inventiveness aid him in securing and completing various jobs, legal and illegal. Those that support his ship and crew on their life at what he calls the corner of no and where. Furthermore, Mal admits to what Frederick Jackson Turner called a restless, nervous energy, promising Simon in the episode Serenity, we never stop moving. As long as the ship is still flying, it's enough. And this brings us to the last of what Frederick Jackson Turner identified as characteristics of the American intellect, 
namely individualism and a love of freedom. In Out of Gas, Mal outlines his goals to his first mate, Zoe. Small crew, then this feel the need to be free, take jobs as they come, and will never be under the heel of nobody ever again. No matter how long the arm of the Alliance might get, we'll just get us a little further. Part of this drive to go a little further certainly comes from the fact that the Alliance is portrayed as a creature that really craves control. Another part of this comes from the fact that Mal and Zoe were on the losing side of the War of Unification. So to them, the Alliance isn't just a bureaucracy run amok, it's an occupying enemy force. From the very beginning, Joss Whedon modeled his story in Firefly and Serenity on the experience of the defeated Confederate soldiers after the U.S. Civil War, many of whom fled to the Western frontier rather than resume life at home under Union domination. Thus, in the episode The Train Job, Mal taunts his former enemies with his variation on a Confederate refrain, I'm thinking we'll rise again. Now, part of this comes from the fact that Whedon read the Pulitzer Prize-winning Civil War novel Killer Angels, and that gave him the inspiration for the kind of series he wanted to write. He has said in interviews, quote, It was about the minutia of the soldiers' lives, and I wanted to play with that classic notion of the frontier. Not the people who made history, but the people history stepped on, end quote. Now, Frederick Jackson Turner would say that providing a haven for those people that history stepped on is one of the many ways the frontier has played a central role in U.S. history. And just as the American West provided this kind of continent-sized safety valve for former Confederates to escape Union authority and reinvent themselves, well, so the outskirts of space provide a haven for former, or not-so-former, browncoats in Firefly and Serenity. If Firefly and Serenity are Western stories in this Turnerian sense, it's fitting that in the film Serenity, Mal predicts the end of his frontier in terms of fences, saying, Every year since the war, the Alliance pushes further out, fences off another piece of the verse, Come a day, there won't be room for naughty men like us to slip about at all, quote. In fact, three years prior to Turner's presentation of his influential paper, the paper that put forth this frontier thesis, a U.S. government census report declared that the U.S. frontier was officially closed. The open West had been filled up by farmers and families, their churches and schools, and, of course, their government. Turner's thesis, then, was not as much a celebration of the frontier as really a eulogy for it. Even in Turner's lifetime, it seemed that the free range was no longer free. Now, Frederick Jackson Turner looked to the past, to the U.S. West, to see the frontier and what he considered to be its opportunity for liberty. But since then, Science fiction authors have used the metaphor of the frontier to consider the story of freedom in the future. That's what I'm saying Joss Whedon was doing and his co-writers were doing with Firefly and Serenity. Scholar and critic Gary K. Wolf notes that the fascination of science fiction comes directly from the fascination with the West, particularly in the United States and in the early part of the 20th century. 
as, quote, not quite uncharted or even unsettled, but still an arena for the kind of heroic individualism that increasingly seemed to be disappearing in the urbanized and industrialized East. With the closing of the frontier, the popular audience sought promises of yet new areas to explore, and science fiction gained popularity as a kind of literature that not only offered new frontiers, but did so without sacrificing the technological idealism that had equally come to characterize industrial America, end quote. Carl Abbott, professor of urban studies and planning at Portland State University, explores the relationship between the U.S. West and science fiction in his book, Frontiers Past and Future, Science Fiction and the American West. And he traces the frontier science fiction story back to the pulps of the late 19th century. This corresponds, as Wolfe says, to the actual closing of the frontier in the United States. It also corresponds roughly to the time in which Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis was gaining popular acclaim and widespread acceptance. Countless works of science fiction that came before Firefly and Serenity draw a connection between the frontier of space and the frontier of the U.S. West. Perhaps the archetypal novel in this vein is Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles from 1950. That revisits the story of the U.S. West through the metaphor of Mars. In his book, Abbott credits Robert Heinlein novels for young readers, the so-called Heinlein juveniles, with introducing him to and cementing his lasting love for science fiction. Many of Heinlein's juveniles take on this Western motif, suggesting that the only place you can pursue true liberty is at the margins, the outskirts, the frontier. For example, the young hero in Farmer in the Sky, also 1950, becomes a pioneer of Jupiter's moon Ganymede. Even though this takes a lot of work cultivating the surface of the moon, he chooses to stay there where he can pursue his own dreams rather than return to an earth of government rationing and want. In achieving the stars, not always through accepted means, the protagonist of Starman Jones, three years later, escapes an earth characterized by an oppressive legal caste system in which the professions are closed to all but a fortunate few, and finds his destiny. But I think it's Heinlein's adult novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, that really is most relevant in the context of Firefly and Serenity. Heinlein retells the story of the American Revolution, casting the moon in the role of the colonies and Earth in the role of Great Britain. And by contrasting the oppressive, narrow-minded, and rigid Earth dwellers with the adaptive, innovative, and liberty-loving loonies of the lunar colony, Heinlein updates Frederick Jackson Turner's thesis, suggesting that the frontier creates opportunities for the development of individual lives that just don't exist in established, entrenched, oppressive communities. And in the ending of the novel, Heinlein takes his idea a step further. Once Luna is independent, its leaders establish a bureaucracy that promises to become just as stifling as Earth's had been. And one of the surviving heroes of the revolution, our point-of-view character, Manny, already is looking to the next frontier as an escape. He notes that, quote, Quite a few young cobbers have gone out to asteroids. Hear about some nice places out there, not too crowded. My word, I'm not even a hundred yet. 
So Bradbury and Heinlein, like Wheaton, based their future frontiers on the historical examples of the West, or at least certain historians' interpretations of them. Captain Malcolm Reynolds in Serenity says, I mean to live. I mean for us to live. The Alliance won't have that, so we go where they won't follow. So it's only in the frontier of space, beyond the long arm of the Alliance, that Mal and his crew can pursue the freedom to live their lives as they please. And I think we see in this the lasting impact of Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis on certain kinds of science fiction, or at the very least echoes of its ideas in certain kinds of science fiction. But in these works of SF, rather than the American experience or a kind of mythologizing of that experience, it is the human experience as a whole that is the focus. And rather than the North American West as the setting, it is in fact space that offers the frontier, the final frontier, as Star Trek might say. My comments here have really been the tip of a much more in-depth and complicated iceberg, so if you are interested in my larger argument and analysis, I would again invite you to check out my essay, Just to Get Us a Little Further, Liberty in the Frontier in Firefly and Serenity, which appears in the collection The Philosophy of Joss Whedon, which is probably available in a library or at least accessible via a library near you. And I hope you will join me in raising a glass to the memory of Ron Glass and his character Shepherd Book. To quote the film Serenity, Shepherd Book used to tell me, if you can't do something smart, do something right. And I wish all of you the happiest of holiday seasons and a bright 2017. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back on genre history. Thank you. Hey, Graham, thank you so much, and I do hope you will enjoy it. Just out as as well, anyone, I'm on about Star Wars there, Ian, by the way. <laughs> Steady girl. I'm just, if anyone's interested, we've got a, a, a red-hot spoiler page on Facebook, and we did that last year for the, you know, the Force Awakens, where if anyone's seen it, you know, and you, you want to go in there, it's a private, it's a private club, drop us, an, drop us an email, go on to Facebook and see us there, and we'll invite you in, and then we can talk about it, it's for people that's seen it in one second, talk, you know, rich spoilers, do you know what I mean? So there is that page over there as well. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So, we're getting into the main fiction, and like I say, it's called Overlap by Beth Chateau. Originally published, as I said, in science fiction short stories, Gothic Fantasy. Beth Chateau is the author of The Clockwork Dagger, steampunk fantasy series from Harper Voyager. Her short fiction is in Intergalactic Medicine Show, Beneath Sister Skies, and Daily Science Fiction. She is a Hanford, California native transplanted to the Arizona de- desert, where she lives with her husband, son, and cat. And you can follow her at bethchatwood.com or bethchatwood on Twitter. This story is narrated by Christina Ellis. Christina Ellis is an award-winning writer, podcaster, currently living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her podcast novel, Nina Kimley the Merciless, was both an inaugural nominee for the 2006 Parsec Award for Best Speculative Fiction Long Form, as well as a finalist for the 2006 Podcast Pierre Award. Nina Kimberly and the Merciless is available for in print from Dragon Moon Press. We've got a link under that as well for Christina. Christina is also the writer, producer, and star of Space Casey, a ten-part oh, a ten-part audio drama miniseries, which won the Goldmark Time Award for Best Science Fiction Audio Production. Go on there, Christina, by the American Society for Science Fiction and Audio. The 2008 Parsec Award for Best Science Fiction Audio Drama. In between major projects, Christina is also the creator and talent of many podcast productions, including Talking About Survivor, Hey, Want to Watch a Movie, and Christina's Shallow Thoughts. And there's all links to Christina's work. They're very busy in the podosphere. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Overlap by Beth Cato. Today was the day Reina Aguilar's goodwill and junkyard jury-rigged teleporter was going to win her the new Avalon Scientific's Innovators Prize. No more setbacks, no more failures. This was it. The deadline was tomorrow. The heavy industrial door clanged behind her as she hopped down two flights of concrete steps to her basement bungalow. Her lab-slash-bedroom-slash-home-sweet-home, complete with borrowed portable toilets stuck in a far corner. Raina liked to think that the smell granted the place some ambiance. The plastic grocery bag rattled against her thigh. In honor of the day, she had gone all out. A Marie Callender's chocolate satin pie. That sucker wasn't even on sale, costing as much as ten of her usual ramen cups. Raina stashed the pie in the freezer. The lower part of the fridge didn't work anymore. 
That's what happened when you mined electronics for spare parts that turned out to not be spare. Okay. She clapped her hands and looked around the basement. Most of the space was devoted to her laboratory. Monitors cluttered several attached desks, while two teleporter pads sat about ten feet apart. They looked like showers because that's what they had been in their previous incarnation. She had ripped out the bases and replaced them with smooth steel and data receivers. Crammed in one corner, not far from her destination unit, was her mattress with its crumpled blankets. Adrenaline thrumming, Reyna began her systems checklist and reviewed the contents on her screens. The list had been printed out for weeks, read to the point of memorization, but her gaze still traced every syllable. Long lines of numerals expanded on the monitors as she scrolled down. She could not afford to screw this up, not if she wanted the NAISP and its million-dollar prize, not if she wanted to attract the attention of hiring managers at CERN, not if she wanted to prove she wasn't a freaking failure. Raina had dropped out of college, five units shy of graduation because of some stupid financial aid deadline. Then, three weeks back, Taco Bell had fired her. Goddamn Taco Bell. Three years working there, shift manager and all, and they fired her because some punk wrote a letter to the district manager because Raina told the jerk not to grab hot sauce packets by the fistful as he walked out the door. Her teleporter was going to work. It had to. Her checklist and data looked good to go. Next, she had to satisfy the requisites for the prize. She climbed a rickety ladder to where a mesh sling cradled her smartphone. That vantage point provided a perfect view of both teleporters. To reduce digital manipulation, contestants had to upload the raw feed of their experiments as they happened. It would go directly to New Avalon's databanks. Reyna could still edit the feed, and she would, for presentation's sake, but that raw version was required. She set the phone to start recording and placed it in its niche. My name is Reyna Aguilar, she said, voice raspy. She knew her face filled the lens. And I'm about to make history. This was a moment she had been working towards since age five when she spied the cover of A Brief History of Time, wondered about the guy in the wheelchair, and started reading. Other kids in Fresno's South Side read graffiti and emulated gang signs for fun. Instead, in first grade, she declared she was going to be a particle physicist when she grew up. I'm going to win. I'm going to win, she whispered beneath her breath. She checked the teleporter pads. She had mapped their surface area and calibrated down to the micrometer so she could land within a precise zone. Reyna's basic data was greatly modified from laboratory work from the UK, where scientists had successfully beamed objects like pencils from room to room. What they had spent ten years researching, she had replicated in six months. She had tested a dozen inanimate objects, but she wasn't going to win the NASIP by zapping a talking Furby from point A to point B. To win, she had to go big. Animal testing should be the next step, but 
Raina wasn't going to risk any living creature on something she wasn't willing to try herself. So that's exactly what she planned to do. It was dangerous. It was hella scary. One of the big theories was that teleporters didn't transfer exact material. Raina could very well be killing herself and then emerge on the other side as a copy. Or, by more crazy science fiction theories, she could rip holes in space-time or invite in an alien race or something. Well, that might win the NASIP, too. Or a Nobel. Her computers hummed. The sound was comforting white noise as she removed her socks and shoes and tossed them beside her bed. She wanted to describe every sensation of transit, how it felt from the calloused skin of her heels to the very taste of the air against her tongue. Raina took a deep breath, glanced at the clock. 10.31. Years of work for something that would take less than ten seconds. She'd need to spend the rest of the day editing footage, perfecting her presentation, eating that pie. All systems were ready. She stared, absorbing that fact, then nodded. Okay, then. She crossed herself as a precaution. Fingers shaking, Raina clicked the mouse and began the countdown sequence. One minute. God, oh God. The ten feet to the teleporter felt like a mile, or two steps. So far, yet so close. She entered and closed the door behind her. Her thudding heart threatened to clog her throat, the world all a hum of electricity. She centered herself on the X and pressed her arms tightly against her sides, her chin up. Steel was cold and smooth beneath her bare feet. In the shadows, the green light of her phone's camera stared down. She raised an arm in a brief wave. A hello, not a goodbye. The seconds ticked by as eternities. She stared up at the light, willing herself not to panic. It was going to happen. It was going to happen. It happened. The light was a brilliant blue, dazzling like a Caribbean sea. Raina felt her lips part in a gasp, but no sound registered in her ears. Sound ceased existing at all. Then the light was gone. All light was gone. Then came the pain. Excruciating agony extended from both feet, its suddenness ripping a scream from her throat. Pain? Why was there pain? Where was she? The smell, the sharpness of ozone. The hum was gone. The computers were off? But the green light above, it was still there. She tried to move. Her right foot scuttled forward, slick with agony, but her left was anchored in place. She fell, screaming. She dropped face first into something soft. Her body bounced. White lightning bolts of agony zinged up both legs, and then blackness claimed her. Searing agony woke her, and wetness and cold. Raina's lips pressed against softness beneath her. Where was she? What happened? That pain, she gasped, reeling, fighting to stay conscious. Even in the darkness, white spots of agony dappled her sight. She forced herself onto her knees, 
One knee was higher, and the cushioning beneath adjusted to the movement, like a bed. A bed? Her fingers explored, finding cloth, sheets, blankets. Hers? She reached back along the length of her body, where wetness lingered, and grasped at her left foot, the one that didn't move. It was inside the mattress. Inside, literally. She felt strained cloth just above where her ankle should be, where it fused with her flesh. She hadn't landed on Telepad B. She had landed in the mattress, fused with it on an atomic level. Above the overlap, her calf swelled like a sausage casing. Shock and nausea rose in her throat, and she retched. Heaving only worsened the pain, driving her flat on her belly again in a pool of her own vomit and blood. Something had gone very, very wrong. Her mind raced over the algorithms. Something, something was off, some calculation. Damn it! She wanted to see her screens, figure out what had happened. Even bleeding out, dying. This was a puzzle that needed solving. Dying. She could die. That rational thought forced back the nausea and terror. Grinding her teeth, she reared onto her knees and probed with her hands again, this time reaching for her right foot. The leg wasn't locked in place, but something was still wrong. She grappled at her heel, pain causing her to dry heave for a moment. A flag of cloth covered most of her soul and was merged with her flesh. It was sopping with hot blood, but the weave of the cloth was familiar. Her sock... She had landed partially on her discarded sock. Dizziness overtook her again, and her face met the foul mattress. It could have been worse. She could have landed in the wall, inside the floor. Died instantly. Melded with that porta potty across the room. Raina tried to laugh, and it emerged somewhere between a screech and a sob. She refused to die here. Alone, she pushed up onto her elbows. Okay, the power was out for some reason. The calculations? She should have landed on the second pad, just as the other test objects had. What had gone wrong? Raina shivered. Cold. That was a sign of shock, right? Loss of body temperature because of the blood. She had to get out of the mattress. Out of the basement. No time to analyze, not now. Her fingers tested the fabric where her leg met the cloth. The strands were pulled tight, frazzled, soaked by blood. Thank God it was a ratty old Craigslist mattress, already weakened by wear. Gritting her teeth, she shredded the threads with her nails and dug deeper, digging her foot out from a mash of sponge and fluff. She couldn't feel many sensations from her foot now, but her calf was hot, bulging. No blood was circulating downward. Taking a deep breath, she yanked her foot upward. It jerked free and met the coolness of the concrete, something metallic clattering at one side of her foot. A spring. Nausea threatened her again, and she forced down bile. If she didn't get out of here, she would go mad in the darkness with freaking feet joined with polyester and cotton and a goddamn spring— Everyone used to say she was crazy anyway, making her own teleporter, saying she was going to win. 
The light of her phone remained steady as it recorded. Oh, God. The NASIP. No, she couldn't think of that now, that failure. She just had to get out of here. Grinding her teeth to block out the pain, she eased her entire body onto the floor. She was cold. So cold. Thirsty. The fridge... It was so damn close, but the bottom compartment was empty. Her phone, seven feet up on an already rickety ladder. She had to make the stairs, both flights, the door on the top. God, that thing was heavy on an average day. The concrete floor was icy cold beneath her palms, causing her to shiver more. Move. Don't dawdle. Raina dragged herself forward. The spring rattled and jostled from one foot, the merged sock heavy and dragging from the other. She found the plastic mats that covered the spider webbing of wires across the floor. Her legs, her body felt compressed by gravity. Sweat beaded her skin, dripped from her nose. The room should be thirty feet across. She knew the direction, roughly. It would be mostly open space. The lights flicked on. Blinded, surprised, Raina cried out, dropping her head towards the floor. She panted, quivering. Lights. The teleporter must have knocked out the power within a radius. She raised her head again. The stairs, ten feet away, stretched into the ceiling in stern gray. She couldn't help it. She glanced back. A snail's trail of blood led back to the mattress. The computer monitors were all on startup screens. Well, her server should have backed up everything to the moment of the outage. The camera would see her clearly now, too, if it was still streaming. Too bad it was all going straight to some NASIP storage server, along with 1,300 other attempts at the prize. No one would see this as a live feed and call for help. She turned back around, curling her body like a pill bug. God, what happened? How did she screw up this badly? The NASIP. This place. No job, no money. She would be homeless. Medical bills. End up back in her parents, cocooned by their pity, their murmured, There, there, you'll get all better, chica. Condolences as they knowingly nodded amongst themselves. Because they knew she'd screw this up. Just like everything else, and end up back home. No degree, not even a job at freaking Taco Bell. Raina screamed, but this time it wasn't from pain. It was from honest-to-God rage. I am not a failure, she yelled, her voice bouncing back against the high ceiling. I am not going to die. I am not going to fail. And she moved forward, tears flowing, breaths heaving. Using her hands, she pushed herself up to the first step and paused. Reality wobbled around her. Sitting upright, not a good idea. She lowered her torso against the concrete steps. Then she began to climb. She didn't count stairs or flights. It was all about moving up, 
one at a time. Having committed some terrible mathematical error in her algorithms, this was all about basic math. One plus one plus one to infinity, it seemed. And then she was staring at the dark gray of the door, placing her weight against her sock-merged foot sent white sparkles of agony dancing across her vision. But she propped herself against the door, leaned on the push-bar, leaned harder. The door opened. Reina had rented the basement in an old commercial complex. Most of the places were vacant. The heavy door echoed as it shut behind her, the automatic lock clattering. Down the hallway she dragged herself, almost out. There was daylight now, slits of summer sun through the high windows. Her elbows ached and bled, bone and blisters grinding on concrete. The next door was lighter, easier. Reina was on the sidewalk. It was hot and gritty, stink of oil and asphalt and exhaust. There weren't any pedestrians, not here. There's only one way to get attention. She dragged herself into the road. The asphalt ripped at whatever flesh remained at her elbows. She was past sobbing, past pain. The world was brightness and heat and cold. Yellow lines in the road, those were her goal. She felt the truck coming, the mighty rumbles of a behemoth. She lacked the strength to move her head. The roaring grew louder, the stink of fumes increasing. And then it stopped. Footsteps, feet in her vision. Hey, what happened? Are you all right? No, she said, and rested her cheek on the pavement. The best part of being knocked out at the hospital wasn't the blissful absence of pain, though that was a major perk. No, it was that she slept through the deadline for the new Avalon Scientific's Innovators Prize. Upon awakening, however, her consciousness didn't go straight to the beeping monitors, the draping intravenous lines, or the long creases of worry in her mother's face as she waited there at Reina's bedside. It went straight to one thought. I failed. If she hadn't just fought so damn hard to stay alive, she might have been suicidal. Instead, she lay there, accepting Mama's fervent prayers, tears, and exclamations of joy. Papa's stoic hand clasp. Even her brother's tearful hug. The doctors came next, then the police. She answered their questions as best she could and asked plenty of her own, making sure no one had messed with her laboratory. Then the flowers started arriving. What the hell? Raina asked as an attendant wheeled in an entire cart of vases and balloons. It's because of that contest and your weird-ass injuries, said her brother, shrugging. You've been all over the news. Oh, pity flowers. How nice. She looked to the attendant. Can you take these to the 
pediatric or cancer wing or something? The flowers kept coming, then relayed requests from the media. A police officer was stationed at her door to keep out the nosy. Raina slipped in and out of sleep. When she was awake, she lay there. She could see the algorithms in her mind. She traced over them, searching for the flaw, whispering beneath her breath. Her ruminations were interrupted by a knock at the door. At her bedside, Papa jerked awake, eyes wide. Pardon me, ma'am. It was the police officer on duty. There's a lawyer here, says she's from New Avalon. Raina's number stream froze in place. New Avalon? Let let her in. The officer nodded and motioned behind him. A lawyer, repeated Papa, frowning. The woman who entered was petite and precise in a white pantsuit. Tussled blonde hair framed her face and contrasted with thick black glasses. I'm Lila Caputo. You're Reina Aguilar? Yeah, why are you here? How are you recovering? The woman's tone was even, as though Reina hadn't asked a thing. She set a briefcase on a side table. I'm shorter. They had to cut off both feet. But they're already talking about prosthetics. Like Reina could afford them. But why is a lawyer from New Avalon here? I didn't complete my submission. But I signed off on the legal stuff. I'm not going to sue you. Not when this was her own stupid fault somehow. I'm not here regarding any lawsuit. I'm here because of your video. Raina sat up, wincing at pain from the motion. The upload? New Avalon owns that video. I remember that much from the fine print. I'm not going to turn around and upload it to YouTube or anything. But my invention is still mine. As it is. Bitterness crept into her voice. As it is. You are the first teleported human being. Yeah, minus my feet because I screwed up and missed my target. You teleported. You lived. You recorded everything. The dark portions were easily lightened for visibility. It's not simply what you've created and what you have the potential to create. It's who you are. New Avalon needs people with that kind of tenacity, that resilience. Her voice softened, and she unlatched the suitcase. I have paperwork offering you a job with our company. The details are here. Actually, there are several jobs, depending on your interests. Raina only stared. Jobs? Of course, there may be other forthcoming offers as well, Lila continued. Would you like to look at our paperwork? Yeah, sure. Raina accepted the packet, blinking in disbelief. Her eyes scanned the sheets. Numbers stood out the most. Numbers always did. For the first time in days, she had keen awareness of her heartbeat. Oh, Ray Ray, you okay? Papa leaned closer. 
Yeah, I'm... okay. She stared at the numbers again, comprehending. Job offers. CERN might even come knocking, but even if not, New Avalon was... New Avalon. That equipment, those extra resources, might be what she needed to get her teleporter working again. Hers. She needed to make sure it still belongs to her, no matter who she worked for. I also had a favor to ask you. Don't feel any obligation, of course. Lila's smile turned surprisingly shy. I was wondering if someone in your family could show me to the basement where everything happened. I wouldn't touch anything, but I and my peers would love to have pictures of it all. Raina bet they would. She met Lila's gaze. The lawyer might be poaching, but there was genuine joy and curiosity behind it. Papa? she asked. He leaned closer, clasping her wrist. I need a lawyer. The best damn lawyer you can get. I don't think money will be an object. Not anymore. Call up some people and have them come here so I can interview them, okay? She looked at Lila, challenging her. Lila arched an eyebrow, but if anything, her smile grew. You have to look out for yourself. I can wait. Papa stood and shuffled to the door, already pulling out his cell phone. No one in my family has wanted to go in there, Raina said. But once I have this lawyer, I'll talk to them, see if they can walk you in. But we'll talk details later. Of course, no pressure. Raina may have screwed up, but this was her chance at redemption. She could make this right, make her teleporter right. New Avalon wanted to use her and her machine. All right, she could use them too. She looked at the papers resting against her chest. There's one big favor you can do for me at my place, though. Lila tilted forward. Oh? There's a pie in my freezer that needs to be brought here to the hospital. Raina grinned as algorithms danced in her head. I think it'd taste really good about now. There you go, don't forget. Copyright is Beth Chattos. Beth, thank you so much. And Christina, what can I say? Huge thank you. Thank you so much. And who would have, you know, the offer there, should we teleport? I would have jumped at the chance. Maybe not so, not so quickly now. So, that is today's show. I do hope you will stick around. Like I'm going to harp on here. Don't forget to support one Patreon. That would just be fantastic. We've now made the commitment, and we are going to pay once we get to a certain. I think it's fifty. I think it's fifteen hundred dollars on Patreon, and we're not that far away. To be quite honest, we're about just shy of twelve hundred. Once we do that, we're going to pay narrators. Yes, thirty dollars a pop. Every show on the District of Wonders. Help her get there. Help her get there. And then after that, it will be repair the staff. <laughs> that would be, be nice, eh? Pay the staff. So, listen, if you're going to the Star Wars, just a huge, you know what I mean? Enjoy it, man. Oh, we're all going as a family. 
And what kind of fucking weird, man? I can't fucking wait. You know why? I tell you why. It might, you know, I'm seeing good reviews, but that's not that's not the real real case. It's just that universe, man. It, and it might not, and I don't think it is for like today's, you know, the kids, you know, like say me and Amy, Amy standing a six year old, seven year old dressed up as Princess Liara, and me first day in the queue. I don't know if, you know, well, I'm sure Reed's excited, but Reed's 15 there now, my son. But it's just that excitement that to get back into that, to go back. It's like time travel to go back into that universe and just submerge yourself in it. Do you know what I mean? And the more these films are coming out, you know, I'm loving, you know, when the first ones come out, you know, don't get us wrong, they're just amazing. But these new ones, you know, they're a little bit darker. They're a little bit more brutal, you know what I mean? There's more death and destruction and, well, <laughs> when you see it more, there's the dark, the thing blew up, didn't it? But you know what I mean? There's like, it's it's pretty close to the edge in some scenes and I'm I'm, I'm loving that, to be quite honest. You know what I mean? It's not that I'm a, a violent person, do you know what I mean? It's just, I like this kind of, the rawness of it, you know, it's it's coming through and by all you know, accounts, the director's done a, a fantastic job, you know, the actors had class, so yes, if you if you go and enjoy it, do you know what I mean, just get, oh man, wait, go, I can't stop talking about it, man. So, let us know, let us know if you've enjoyed it, you know what I mean, let us know if you know anybody who actually hasn't seen a star, you know, and, and don't get us wrong, there's, you know, <laughs> probably a lot more hasn't than has, but it'd be nice to know, you know, and call them out and actually shame them, you know. <laughs> Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of This presentation has been brought to you by... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com 
Thank you for listening.